Welcome back to NC Realtors Redefine, the NC Realtors podcast. Every July, NC Realtors rolls out changes and improvements to its forms and contracts. On this episode of Redefine, NC Realtors General Counsel, Will Martin, provides a brief overview of the 2022 forms changes. If you'd like to read the changes as Will reviews them, visit the link in this episode's show notes to download a copy of the presentation material. My name is Will Martin. I'm an attorney for the North Carolina Realtors. It's July 11th, and we all know what that means. Uh, 11 days ago, the North Carolina Realtors rolled out changes to its many, many residential, commercial, property management, and uh, this year auction forms uh, have undergone some changes. So I'm going to spend the next few minutes highlighting just 10 of what I consider to be the most significant changes to the residential forms. Five of those changes are in the offer to purchase and contract, and five other forms each account for one of the other five changes I'm going to touch on. Before I do that, though, I want to identify several new property management and commercial forms. There are four new property management forms. So the PMD was very busy this spring uh, updating the rental contract and the uh, property management agreement, but also developing these four new forms. I just want to briefly mention them. Uh, The first one is a new ground lease uh, designed for the lease of a parcel or space. That's uh, Form 414-T. It's patterned very closely after the existing residential rental contract with things that don't pertain to the lease of a dwelling just taken out. So it's a little bit shorter, but it looks an awful lot like the rental contract. Uh, We think this form will be used mostly by members who manage mobile home parks, but it could also be used for somebody who's managing an individual parcel, maybe with a mobile home on it or or maybe something else. There's also a new form that can be used in the very common situation we get questions about where the tenant wants to terminate their lease before its ending date. That's 426-T and it will uh, enable the property manager to enter into an agreement with the tenant about the terms and conditions of the early termination of the lease. The third new property management form is a demand for possession form, which we created in response to a number of reports of the dismissal of eviction cases based on the fact that the property manager was unable to prove that they had demanded possession before they filed the eviction and demanding possession is a statutory requirement. So this new form uh, may be used to either terminate the lease and demand possession of the property, or simply to demand possession of the property from a holdover tenant. That's form 427-T. The fourth new property management form is a site unseen addendum that can be added to the rental contract in situations where the tenant has rented a property that they haven't physically seen yet. That's form 446-T. Hey, the two new commercial forms. The first is a guarantee addendum that can be added to either of the NCR's commercial lease forms or an attorney drafted lease 
if the landlord is going to require a third party to guarantee the tenant's obligations under the lease. That's Form 595-T. The second new commercial form is a memorandum of lease that can be filed in the Register of Deeds Office in situations where the lease is for more than three years. Uh, that's Form 596-T. Okay, that's a very quick look at six new property management and commercial forms. I'm going to move on now to a quick look at several changes to the residential forms. Change number one, fuel tanks and fuel. Those of you who've been in the business for a while will remember that back in the day, you had to measure the amount of fuel left in the tank at closing and the seller was given credit for what was left on the settlement statement. So essentially the buyer was purchasing the unused fuel from the seller. That caused a lot of issues when brokers either forgot to do the measurement or the closing date got changed and it had been measured, but nobody remeasured it and that caused arguments. Plus it was a pain to do the measurement anyway. So we changed the offer to purchase quite a few years ago now so that the buyer now essentially gets what's left in the tank as of settlement as part of the purchase price. So they're not paying the seller for the fuel that remains in the tank at settlement. That change did reduce the number of disputes about fuel, but we continue to get occasional disputes about fuel and fuel tank ownership. So the forms committee thought it might be helpful to create a new section in the offer to purchase that's devoted exclusively to fuel tanks and fuel. So wording pertaining to fuel tanks and fuel that appeared in different sections of the previous version of the offer to purchase have been consolidated into a new paragraph 7D, which is in the seller representations section of the offer to purchase. So um, you won't find any reference to fuel tanks and fuel in the list of fixtures um, in that list in paragraph two. It's all been moved into this new uh, paragraph 7D. Most of the wording has remained the same, but there are a couple of changes that I, I want you to know about. Uh, First, in the new version of the offer to purchase, the seller will be required to identify whether there are any fuel tanks located on the property, and if there are any, to provide information about them. Uh, sellers are already required to provide this information when they list their property using the exclusive right to sell listing agreements. So we've essentially taken those blanks from the seller representation section of the listing agreement and copied and pasted them into this new paragraph 7D in the offer to purchase. So the information about the tank, whether it's owned or leased, and contact information for the owner of the tank if it's leased, and the fuel provider, that information will now need to be completed in the offer to purchase as well. One of the issues that has occasionally come up is where the tank is leased but it's not identified as a leased item in paragraph two of the offer to purchase. And so that sometimes causes the buyer to argue that the seller's in breach of contract if the seller isn't able to convey ownership of the tank as part of the sale. So it's practice trap when the uh, agents neglect to identify it as a leased tank. So in the new version, 
uh, assuming the seller identifies the tank as leased in paragraph 7D by checking the appropriate box, there will be no need to list it as a leased item in paragraph two that would be excluded from the transaction. So if the seller provides the information about the tank in the offer to purchase, it will avoid this practice trap that agents occasionally fell into. We anticipate that MLSs will create new fields for this information if they don't already exist so that the information will be readily available to a buyer's agent when they're preparing an offer. In the meantime, we recommend that if a listing includes a fuel tank, the listing agent should add information about the tank in the agent's remarks section uh, so that it will help the buyer agent who's trying to prepare an offer uh, properly complete the offer. The second thing I want to mention, and this is really important <clears throat> about this new paragraph, is that in the new version of the offer to purchase, <clears throat> the seller may use any fuel in a tank through settlement, but the seller is not permitted to remove the fuel or resell it. This is a change from the previous version of the offer to purchase. And what that means to me is that if there's a significant amount of fuel in a tank at the time of an offer, the seller really should take that into consideration in determining an acceptable sales price because they're not really going to be permitted to resell it to the provider. Okay, change number two. I think this is a significant change. Paragraph 11 in the offer to purchase is the paragraph that deals with what happens if there's a material change in the condition of the property after contract and before closing. Uh, as you know, I mean, this paragraph's been in the offer to purchase for many years. Uh, if there's a material change in the condition of the property, and I had a hotline call this morning where just before closing, a tree fell into the side of the house. So, um, in that situation, if the seller is uh, unable or uh, unwilling to return the property to the condition it was in on the date of the offer by closing, then the buyer has a choice to make. The buyer can either terminate the contract or the buyer can proceed with the transaction, accepting the property in its existing condition and would be entitled to uh, the proceeds of any insurance policy on any claim that the seller files. If the buyer decides to terminate, in the previous version of the contract, the buyer was entitled to a refund of their earnest money, but not their due diligence money. That's been changed, significant change. Um, this has never been an issue until the due diligence fees have gotten to uh, where they are, but it just didn't seem fair that if the seller uh, failed for whatever reason to return the property to its current condition and the buyer just didn't want to go through with the transaction, that the buyer was essentially forfeiting their due diligence fee. So going forward, the buyer will be entitled to a refund of their due diligence fee. And we had a lot of discussion about this. And the buyer is not entitled to recover their due diligence costs, which would be the case if the seller was in breach of contract. This is not really a breach of contract because the seller is not contractually obligated 
to maintain the property in the same condition it's in as on the date of the offer. It's just that the buyer has the right to terminate the contract if the condition of the property changes in some material way and the seller doesn't restore it to its previous condition. We hope this change will more fairly balance the party's rights and duties in a difficult situation where the condition of the property has unexpectedly changed after contract, but before closing, and it may not be feasible to return the property to its previous condition. Change number three, payment of owner association and management company fees. Misunderstandings about whether the buyer or the seller is responsible for payment of a particular fee that's being charged by an owner's association or its management company are pretty common. In the previous version of the contract, the party's obligation is to pay those fees are addressed in different sections of the contract and they cross-reference each other. So in order to figure out whether or not the buyer or the seller is responsible for payment of a particular fee, sometimes you had to sort of toggle back and forth between uh, different sections of the contract. So we uh, hope and believe that trying to address the party's obligations in the same paragraph of the contract will help reduce confusion about which party is responsible for a particular fee. So the party's, the party's responsibilities for payment of owner association fees are now addressed in a new charges by owner's association paragraph, which is paragraph nine. Now, the buyer and the seller obligations are not fundamentally different in the new version, but I do want to point out two things. In the new version, the seller is specifically responsible for payment of any fees charged for transferring or updating ownership records of the association, as well as for payment of any expedite fee charged for providing statements on owner's association dues or assessments. I think in the previous version, the seller was responsible for those things, but now it's specifically stated. The second thing I want to mention is that in the old version, in the buyer's column, there was this phrase that the buyer's responsible for, quote unquote, charges for buyer's future use and enjoyment of the property. Well, we've taken that out. It's a fairly broad phrase, and it seemed like it sometimes caused disputes about whether or not a particular fee uh, fell within the meaning of that phrase. And so in the new version, we just list specific types of charges that are uh, the responsibility of the buyer to pay rather than uh, this sort of broad category with examples. We've just kind of taken the examples. And um, as before, any charge that is not specifically in the buyer's column is the responsibility of the seller. That's not a change. Okay, fourth change. <clears throat> Still in the offer to purchase. Paragraph 1C, mobile homes. In the new version, the parties will need to affirmatively indicate whether or not the sale will include a manufactured or mobile home. We made this change at the request of the real estate attorneys on the Joint Forms Task Force. They complained that uh, on occasion, 
they won't know until the last second that the transaction actually includes a mobile home. And that's something they have to check out and it can cause delays. And although we've got an addendum and the additional provisions addendum that can be attached to the contract to identify a mobile home that's going to be part of the transaction, apparently uh, on a number of uh, occasions that addendum is not attached. And so hopefully by specifically uh, requiring the parties to indicate whether or not the transaction will include a mobile home, it will be identified as part of the transaction more often and the closing attorneys won't have the issues that come up when they don't find out that the sale includes a mobile home until the 11th hour. All right, fifth change, this is the last change to the offer to purchase. The remedy of specific performance, this is in paragraph 23B. In the new version of the offer to purchase, the buyer's right to sue for specific performance is specifically stated in paragraph 23. I don't think this is a substantive change from the previous version of the contract because in the previous version, all the buyer's remedies uh, that were that are available to the buyer were preserved if the seller failed to perform the contract. So we but we do believe that specifically identifying the buyer's right to sue for specific performance will help highlight the existence of that remedy as an alternative to termination of the contract and recovery of damages. So those are the five changes I wanted to mention to the offer to purchase. Um, I want to say that changes two, three, four, and five have also been made to the vacant lot slash land version of the offer to purchase, which is form 12T. And the third and fifth changes that I just summarized have been made to the new construction version of the offer to purchase and contract. That's form 800T. Okay, moving on to the uh, remaining five changes. Change number six is uh, to the buyer possession before closing agreement, which is form 2A7-T. We've added some new wording <clears throat> to clarify three things. One, the seller must deliver all means of access to the property to the buyer at the commencement of the buyer's possession. Two, the seller is entitled to retain an entry key. Three, the seller has a right of access to the property, but only in the case of an emergency. The uh, previous version of that form did not address the issue of access to the property. And so our view was in the uh, buyer possession before closing agreement, since the seller didn't retain any right to possession, they didn't have any right to possession. So we've at least clarified that. Change number seven, this is to the seller possession after closing agreement. And we've added some comparable wording in paragraph one to clarify the same three things. One, the seller must provide the buyer with an entry key at closing. Two, the seller is entitled to retain all means of access to the property during the seller's term of occupancy. And three, the buyer has a right of access to the property during the seller's possession, but only in the case of, of an emergency. All right, change number eight. <clears throat> This is to the offer to purchase and contract for vacant lots slash land. I've, 
I've just mentioned that four of the five changes that I went over on Form 2T have also been made to Form 12T. We've also made some changes to the note uh, at the very top of page one, right under the name of the form. The, and this note's been in this form for many years. The, the main purpose of the note is to give a heads up to users about the existence of a North Carolina statute, <clears throat> excuse me, that limits the ability of a seller to sell property by reference to a subdivision plat that hasn't received final approval and been recorded. Well, the note in the previous version of Form 12T was a little overbroad the way it was written, and it sometimes caused confusion about whether Form 12T would be an appropriate form to use uh, in a particular transaction. So the, the purpose of the revisions to the note is to more carefully describe the limitations imposed by the statute and uh, to specifically cite, cite the statute. And, and I would say that if you're in a close call about whether or not this statute applies, you probably ought to be talking with a lawyer about whether or not <clears throat> 12T is an appropriate form to use. And the note hopefully will help point the lawyer to the statute uh, to look at to determine whether or not it applies to the particular transaction that you want to that you want to put under contract. Okay, change number nine is to the referral agreement. That's form 730. We got a few questions last year. Well, let me put it this way. Um, if you refer uh, a prospect to somebody else, um, in, in exchange for the payment of a referral fee, and you find out that the prospect has been assigned to somebody else other than the person that you referred them to, uh, is that okay? We had, we had several questions uh, about that uh, during this past year. And so the forms committee uh, decided to add a new assignment paragraph to the uh, referral agreement. And the uh, effect of that uh, new paragraph, it will prohibit assignment of a referral agreement by the firm receiving the referral. And it will prohibit a change in the individual agent to whom the referral was made without the written consent of the firm that made the referral. We've also specifically stated that if an assignment is permitted, the assignee will be bound by all the terms of the referral agreement. Okay, change number 10, last but certainly not least, uh, change to the dual agency wording in the listing agreement. And I'll say that I'm using the listing agreement to highlight this change, but the uh, dual agency wording uh, also appears in all the other listing agreements and buyer agency agreements, both residential and commercial. And this same change has been made to all of those agency agreements. But I'm just going to I'm going to use the listing agreement to uh, to illustrate the, the change that's been made. In the previous version of the listing agreement, the formatting of the dual agency paragraph sometimes caused confusion. 
about whether the seller needed to authorize both dual agency and designated a dual agency because they were in separate subparagraphs. In the new version, the authorization to practice designated dual agency, if it's offered by the firm, you know, you, you don't have to offer designated dual agency, but if you do, and if the seller authorizes it, the authorization appears as a subset of dual agency. That's because a seller has to first authorize dual agency in order for the firm to also be in a position to practice designated dual agency. So we hope that the reformatting of this section will clarify the need for the seller to authorize both dual agency and designated dual agency by initialing in both places. Uh, several things that I want to uh, bring specifically to your attention about this new paragraph. It's important, very important to note that in the new version, if the seller initials the designated dual agency choice, the seller is not only authorizing the firm to practice designated dual agency, the firm is directing the firm to practice designated dual agency. We made this change at the request of the Real Estate Commission. One of their attorneys, Charlie Moody, sits on the Forms Committee, and Charlie told the Forms Committee that the Commission has received a number of complaints from sellers or it could be buyers <clears throat> involving firms that ended up practicing dual agency, notwithstanding the fact that the client had authorized designated dual agency, and the client was upset that. The firm had chosen to practice dual agency uh, rather than having uh, an agent who represented only their interests. And so we've strengthened the wording so that now the seller is both authorizing and directing the firm to practice designated dual agency. I want to point out a couple of things about this new paragraph. They're new. A couple of other things. That's new. Uh, two more things. First, if a seller authorizes dual agency, the new version of the form requires the seller to indicate whether the same individual agent will be permitted to represent both the seller and the buyer in a transaction. Apparently, sometimes the say the seller is okay with dual agency, but they really don't want the same agent uh, representing the buyer as well. And this will give you the ability to uh, clearly indicate that. Uh, in the um, in the listing agreement. Uh, secondly, if the firm offers designated dual agency and the seller authorizes it, the firm may remain in dual agency only if designated agency would not be permitted for some reason, or if the seller agrees in writing that the firm will remain in dual agency only. I'll give you an example. Let's assume that a firm practices designated dual agency and a seller client authorizes. Now also assume that the listing agent also represents a buyer who has authorized designated dual agency and who wants to look at the seller's property. Well, the same individual agent obviously can't represent both the buyer and the seller as a designated dual agent. And in that case, the agent, the individual agent would need to get something in writing at that time from both the seller and the buyer 
authorizing the individual agent to represent them both in a transaction involving the seller's property. In my view, a simple email exchange with the client or clients would suffice. On the other hand, if the buyer and seller still want designated dual agency, the firm will need to designate one agent to represent only the interests of the seller and a different agent to represent only the interests of the buyer. The important point here is that if a seller or a buyer has indicated a desire for an agent who will represent only their interests, that's what you need to do, unless this is assuming you offer designated dual agency. Unless the seller or the buyer changes their mind and lets you know they, they consent to that in writing, or designated agency can't be practiced for some reason. Okay, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that same change has also been made to all the other residential and commercial agency agreements. Okay, well, um, I think that's it, uh, everybody. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to uh, educate yourself about these changes. And um, I hope this has been helpful. Take care and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. All right, bye-bye. To hear the Q&A portion of this presentation and to get access to future exclusive NC Realtors content, be sure to join the NC Realtors Mobile Mondays group on Facebook. Be sure to catch up on every episode of NC Realtors Redefined by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud.